Romans 15, 14, I'm going to start off by reading a Bible verse for us, says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And this is at the end of Paul's letter to the, to the Romans, and Paul knows this church is it's, it's far from perfect. Plenty of areas they need to grow and improve, but he ends by basically saying, you guys are a great church. There's goodness here, there's knowledge here, you have the revelation of God, and you're able to instruct one another. You don't need me, you're able to do it yourselves. And he's proud of this church, and he commends them. With all that you know, having all the revelation of God, with all you are, having the goodness of life, you are able to counsel one another. That word instruct there in the Greek is nuthete in Greek, and it's the word for admonish, or to put it in today's terms, to counsel. You are able to counsel. You are competent to counsel one another. You yourselves, not just pastors, not just philosophers, not just professionals, but you, the believer in the church, regardless of gender, status, position, rank, education, they had converted Greeks or Jews, slaves or free, men and women, these are the people that Paul considers competent to counsel. Look in the church, look around us, look at our world, look how great of a need there is. Mental health issues are everywhere, they abound. $467 billion used to treat mental illness in the U.S., $25 billion spent on antidepressants. A quarter of Americans are said to suffer with some kind of mental disorder, mental health disorder. 60% of those people will never receive any type of treatment. And yet, I, I found this quote from Stephen Hyman, former director of National Institute of Mental Health, and I'll put it up there. This is an amazing quote to me. He says, we psychiatrists have been given an impossible task. Our medications can often alleviate symptoms, but they often come with side effects. We cannot give people what they really need. People need meaning and relationships. That's a pretty crazy admission to me from the lead, one of the leading figures in the mental health industry for all the progress, for all the knowledge, for all the wisdom, for all the observations, all the knowledge that we have, all the training we have, we're not able to do better than symptom alleviation. What an opportunity for the church. And just to give you some context, to me, this is basically part three of a series, a mini-series I started nine months ago, right before the pandemic. And you guys are like, you expect us to remember that? No, then go listen to it, okay? On reading the Bible supernaturally, praying supernaturally, and today we want to talk about counseling supernaturally, because I think there is a natural progression there. Colossians talks about how we're, once the Word of Christ dwells in you richly, then you teach and admonish one another. It's the same word there. That word admonish is counsel, nutheo. And the reason I, I had this sermon like in the back of my mind in February, and I was like, I, it's, it's so much work, right? I felt so ill-equipped. It's like opening up this huge can of worms. I could talk as a pa former pastor, I could talk about reading the Bible, praying, but there's something about counseling that just gets you deep into the messiness of life and sin and suffering. And there was a part of me, I was like, I just, I just really don't want to do it. You know, <laughs> I just felt a little lazy. But man, this pandemic has really highlighted that need for me. We need to talk about this. And so let me set some expectations, some realistic expectations for this one sermon. I don't expect it to change your world or even give you everything you need to handle everything that comes your way. But I do want to give you a basic framework for approaching people, in, especially in their sin and in their suffering. And when I first started in ministry, it was easier for me, and I liked sermons where it was like 10 ways to 10 skills, 10 how-tos, and 10 effective strategies. And what I realized after a while is that's not what people in the church really need. What we really need is a counseling. It's a big-picture worldview that can explain and guide and motivate all the things that God calls us to do as counselors. We don't need tips. 
We don't need advice. We don't need strategies. We need a sermon that will reorient our hearts. And so I hope this gives us like the helicopter view, like the big gospel view of how we're called to respond as counselors, everything you're going to deal with as counselors. And I am going to explain what I mean by counselors. But I just want to give you a warning. I have 10 points. Okay, This is a record for me. Okay, I'm breaking all the rules from my preaching class, and I'm like, whatever, I don't care, right? Uh, Ten points, I'm erring on the Puritan error, like so many points, it becomes pointless, okay? But I hope it doesn't do that. And with each point, each point is simply a word, a key word, and then there will be a perspective or principle that goes under that point, okay? And so I'm going to try to blow through these, but I'm just giving you a heads up. We may be here for a little while, okay? So, so get comfy, okay? All right, so first word is called, Okay? Called. And when I was a youth pastor, I feel I would have been like, everyone say called. And, but I won't do that to you guys, okay? <laughs> called, okay? And the entire church is called to be instruments of God to form human souls. And so we'll put the principle and the, the key word up on the screen every time, okay? And I'm not going to be able to exposit this text, but Ephesians 4 is the key. And in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul teaches us that Christ's grand plan for his church is for the pastors and teachers, the overseers, those that are overseeing the church, to focus not on doing all the work of ministry themselves, but to equip the members to do the work of ministry. How do members do the work of ministry? When every member is doing the work of ministry, what are they doing? Verse 15 says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, verse 15. That's a simple definition of counseling. Speaking the truth in love. And when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. My job Rand's job, the overseer's job, is to equip the saints, every believer, the holy ones, so that they could do the work of ministry. How do they do that? By speaking the truth in love. And so the vision of Ephesians 4 is not like, hey, every single time I need an issue, I'm going to go to the pastor. Where the pastor has some, some kind of power that us regular folks don't have. Honestly, that's a very Asian, Confucianistic idea. That's not actually a biblical idea. Here it says, the vision of Ephesians 4 is that counseling is not done by this tiny little corner of the church, but it's in the, the entire church is called to counsel, to admonish, to teach, to share. And honestly, in, if, if, if it was the other way around where the pastor, if it was me, Ran, John, Jason, the overseers, if we were the only ones called to counsel, I'd give up right now. If we're the ones were called to counsel and we're the only ones that can in, like, initiate some kind of change or process, then I give up. If I am working as if the spiritual well-being of every member directly depended on me, I will fall under such a burden. But thankfully, God in his wisdom assigned the task of ministry not to a single man, not to even a team of men, but to the entire church. It's not simply a few people in one corner of the church. It's the mindset of an entire congregation that understands that they are called to speak the truth in love. It can be very easy for us to think that the role of the people is to pray and to hug that person, which is not something I undervalue. But the real counseling is done outside the church with the professionals or only by pastors. That is not a biblical idea. If we take the world's definition of counseling, we think of a formal professional setting. That type of counseling is characterized by clinical detachment, professionalism, confidentiality, that's what you can expect. And I do think there is a place for that. I've been in that type of counseling before. But counseling in the Bible is not limited to a professional setting. It's much more informal. It's in the living room more than in the counseling office. It happens on the drive. It happens in a coffee shop in our natural context. 
It's much more informal. I, 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 I used to use this cheesy, you know, little way to help me re remember. It's coffee time coaching, mealtime mentoring, driving discipleship, right? I used to be a youth pastor. You need these little things to help people. Like, it helps us. Come on. Don't be too cool, okay? It's not something that just happens. Listen, if counseling is only happening in a pastoral office, then we're missing something. It should be happening every day, informally, every week at our DG. That's what a true discipleship group, a true discipleship culture is, and it should be the entire church that's engaged in this. God is calling each of on the members of our church to commit yourself to being an instrument in the hands of God to help form the souls of those around you. Have you embraced that call? Have you accepted that call to participate in one another ministry, specifically here by speaking the truth in love and counseling? All this pandemic has highlighted for me is that I want to be a sharp and ready tool in the hands of God. Second word, inability. And the principle here, or the perspective here, is recognizing what you are unable to do is essential to good counseling. Let's talk about the reality of the situation. Have you ever known a friend that needed change, but you didn't know how to help? Have you ever tried to help and felt like you were making things worse? Have you ever felt like you wanted to help someone, but you're totally in over your head? Have you ever felt absolutely helpless in watching someone fall deeper and deeper into sin or struggle? Naturally, the response when I call the church to stand in the gap is that you may feel I'm not ready, I'm not equipped. And I get that. I was a psych major in college. I wanted to be a psychiatrist before I went into ministry. I went to seminary where I was trained for five years. I was a pastor for 10 years, and I feel that tension. I didn't want to do this sermon because I was like, oh, I just, I'm not equipped for this. And nothing has made me lose heart faster, more quickly than issues in one-on-one -on -one counseling. And I don't think it's a sign of weakness or failure to feel unable as a counselor because that is true. I can beat myself up for feeling inadequate, but I feel that way because it's true. I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the patience, I don't have the knowledge, the perseverance, the strength, the love that I really need to counsel well. But God constantly calls unable people to do important things so that he will get the glory and not them. He calls us to do the impossible so that we search out for help and we find, not principles, but we find first him. God constantly calls us to unable or impossible things. John the Baptist, he says in the Gospel of John, I am not the Christ. That's a good thing for every single person to remember. And that might be one of the most important things to realize in counseling. I've never saved anyone. I've never saved a marriage. I've never changed someone's heart. I've never changed a person. I've never made that person into a new person. I was in youth ministry for 10 years. I tried to counsel students, hundreds and hundreds of students. I say all the right words. I try to do all the right things. I've never been able to change a heart. It's only being Christ. And that helps me sleep at night. Because I can't handle that burden if I'm the one that has to create it. We can't create change in others. That's a good lesson for us parents. Our inability is not in the way of God's plan. It's part of his plan. And any Christian should admit they are inadequate and run to God. Those are the ones that will make the best counselors. He's not asking you to be able. First, he's asking you to be willing. And in your weakness, he will be your strength and use you to change the hearts of others. I might foolishly, and that's the right word, foolishly think at times that I am the fourth member of the Trinity and I can fix this person. I can change this person. 
But in my relationships, I need to remember who I am. I am an instrument in the hands of God. God alone changes people. We don't need counselors who are able. We need those who feel their deep inability. Listen, you make an assessment, you make an evaluation that someone around you needs change. That's right. That's good. You have a deeper desire in you that I really want to see that change, which again is right. I have a commitment to work to help this person, which is again right. But underneath all of that, there can be the assumption that you have a power that you don't have. Like, sometimes we're, like, we act like we're mini messiahs. We are the Christ. We're the fourth member of the Trinity, trying to do things that only God can do. I see this all the time in dating relationships. I'm going to save this person. This person, I'm going to make him into a good Christian man. And we assign ourselves a power we don't have. If we're going to counsel in the way God calls us to counsel, we first have to admit we don't have the power to create that change that we want to see in that person Why did Christmas happen? God came to earth because we could not change ourselves or change each other. We are unable to do that. I don't need counselors who trust in themselves and are very wise in their own eyes. We need counselors who trust in the Lord with all their heart and acknowledge Him, and He will make their path straight. Third, third point, ambassadors. Okay? 20% done, okay? We are called to be faithful representatives of the message, methods, and character of the king. And I want to go through this one quickly, but 2 Corinthians 5.20 gives us a good picture here of who we are or how we should view ourselves as counselors. Uh, Verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5.20, do we have it? It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this point is simply saying, I'm a representative of a king. He's going to make his appeal through me. And as a representative, as an ambassador, I can't just say what I want to say. I can't live the way I want to live. I can't do what I want to do. Everything I do needs to be an accurate reflection of the king. I'm an intermediary. My opinion as an ambassador is irrelevant. I will speak the king's message whether I feel like it or not, whether it's a hard truth or not. That's what an unfaithful ambassador is. But in my sinfulness, I forget who I am, and I think and speak and act independently of my king. But when I counsel someone, there are things where I know God wants this person to hear it. This is what he has said. And there's this part of me, "Ah, I'd I'd rather just be comfortable. I'd rather not say, take a risk by speaking the truth in love because I'm sort of afraid what's going to happen. I'd rather just listen because that's natural to me. But an ambassador is shaped by one question. What's the will and plan of the one who sent me? I'm not there in front of someone to represent my ideas, my wisdom, my thoughts, which are often sinful, where it's like, I want to throw in a little diss here. You know, like, I always wanted to say this to this person, so that I have this opportunity. So I'm going to sort of mix my biblical counsel along with my sinful, like, yeah, you're, you're an idiot, right? You know, where I just want to put them down. That is not what our king represents. Our goal is that through the things we say, the message, the way we say them, our methods, and the attitudes we express, our character, Christ will make his appeal through us to this person. Are we confronting others like many kings, communicating our opinion and trying to get them to do what I want them to do, like telling my kids, just be quiet, I just want some free time, right? Or am I driven by the agenda of the king? Am I faithfully representing the message, methods, and character of the king? Fourth, Fallen, and this is going to be, I think, one of my longest points, okay? Our biggest problem is not out there in the world. It's in here, in our own heart. Oh, in my, our own heart. I think I was debating, like, should I put my heart? Should I put our heart? I don't know, okay? In my own heart. Christ is described, isn't it? I I love this idea. Christ is described as a wonderful counselor. In Isaiah chapter 9, a Christmas, a common Christmas passage. 
And one of the reasons why he's so wonderful is that he can correctly diagnose us. When I go to a doctor, I want a positive and good message. I want them to like, tell me things I want to hear, but you know, that's not what I need. I need an honest diagnosis, and to be told everything is fine when I'm seriously messed up will kill me. It might make me feel good, but it doesn't help me. Here's the honest diagnosis from our wonderful counselor. A, we are alienated from God. B, we are in bondage to self. And C, as a result, we are in conflict with others. We are not first psychologically false, where it's just an issue with me and myself. We are first interpersonally false, covenantally false, religiously false, spiritually false. People live right only when they are made right with Christ. That's the core issue. I don't need to go to a counselor to be told to love myself more. I I heard that every single month from youth kids. I just need to love myself more. That is not what you need to hear. The wonderful counselor never says to love yourself more. He says to die to yourself. Well, the Bible says love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. No, that passage is assuming we all love ourselves too much. And how you are so centered on yourself, that's how much we should be centered on others. <laughs> I heard that so many times. I don't need to be told I need to forgive myself. No, I need forgiveness from God. The Bible makes it clear the most significant thing that God saves us from is not our circumstances, it's from us. He saved us from us. And godly counselors will always go, we'll be like a surgeon. We're not trying to get the symptoms or the external factors. We're trying to go after the cancer in their souls. We're all fallen, and we know that, but in 10 years as a youth pastor, 15 years as a church leader, what scares me most about our fallenness is how good we are at shifting the blame. I am an amazing lawyer when it comes to defending myself and declaring my innocence. And I am an amazing lawyer when it comes to providing evidence of the guilt of others. I am so good at putting the responsibility in others, but so bad at pointing at myself because sin blinds. Sin blinds, it deceives. And what the scariest thing about being blind, what if there was a blind person that didn't know they were blind? That's a picture of what the fall has done to us in Genesis chapter 3. Not only is this person I'm trying to counsel blind, but they don't realize they're blind, so they don't make accommodations. They don't learn how to adjust and live according to their blindness. They think they see. And even for the, uh, for the Christian, Paul says, we only see in part. There's still areas where I'm blind to my blindness. And because I'm blind to my own sin, which is what sin does to me, so often it's not my fault. We have to have a clear understanding of what the core problem is. And if you've been around me, you've heard me preach before, you've heard me say this a million times, and I'll say it again, I am the biggest problem in my life. It's the brokenness in me, not the brokenness around me that scares me the most. Everything, everything this in our culture tells us to shift blame. It's not your fault. You had no choice. It's because of what others did. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, that's what it reminds me of. In the fall, one of the first consequences of sin, the man said, it was the woman you gave to me. She's the one at fault. Then, the Lord God, then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The world says the main problem is your upbringing, your parents, how you were raised, genetics, low self-esteem because of an unmet need, an unmet love, which then determines your inner responses. There's different degrees to this, but psychological determinism says that your responses and behaviors are dictated by external factors, genetic factors, 
that are often impossible, they say, or some people say at least very, very difficult to change. The core problem is our circumstances, something that happened to me, and those determine your response, and I reject that with all my heart. Without belittling the impact of our family or how you're raised, I need to make a distinction here, okay? There are times when you're going to counsel people who are suffering, and there are times when you're going to counsel people who are sinning. And how you counsel those people are different, but oftentimes the line gets blurred. But let me just give you a general principle here. When you're in doubt, always lead with God's compassion for the suffering. If someone's suffering... I'm not rebuking them. I'm trying to help them reorient their perspective to understand the, the greatness of the gospel, to see eternal things. If someone is sinning, I'm helping them repent and take hold of the promises of God. My job when someone is suffering, and this is how I've, I think I've changed for the better over the years, is I see myself less as a problem solver Instead, like focusing on their circumstances, like how, how can we fix this? How can we change this? How can we make outside better so inside is better? And I've changed how I do that where now I focus more on how can we help you glorify Christ during this ugliness? That's a better question to ask a, counsel, a counselee who's like suffering. How can we help you glorify Christ? How can you glorify Christ? Not why did this happen or what can we do to fix it? Focus on the fallenness in them, not the fallenness outside of them. When I'm helping someone suffer, like my job is to help them suffer well. I want to see them, it brings me joy to see them walk faithfully through their suffering because I know life's going to keep throwing stuff at them. If I just keep trying to fix their lives, they're not going to learn how to suffer. Righteousness pays off in the long term. That's how I sort of think about suffering or those that are going through suffering. Okay? We're not there to rebuke them. We're here to help them steward and not waste their suffering. Okay? Romans chapter 8 is big on that. Okay? But the temptation during suffering is for our suffering to become an excuse to sin. And in that case, we're counseling someone who's not suffering well. I've got plenty of experience with this. For years and years and years, I gave into this temptation to be bitter because of my upbringing. Always feeling sorry for myself, always feeling like the victim, always comparing myself and thinking my family's problems give me an excuse to lash out. All of you need to accommodate to me because I'm the one who's suffering giving into the temptation to be bitter. But it wasn't until God opened my eyes to the brokenness in me that things started to change around me. That's how change happens. It's from the inside out. When we're counseling someone who uses their suffering as a sin, uh, as an excuse to sin, we need to help them not fall into the, the narrative of our culture that says and leads to this chronic victim mentality where the core problem is always elsewhere. The woman made me do it. The man or the snake made me do it. Your suffering is not an excuse to sin. It's understandable, but it's not acceptable. That's not to say the first thing you do is just call someone out. Okay? When someone is suffering, it's important to walk alongside them, to understand them. But at a certain point, we have to say in a gentle, loving, and truthful manner, we need to bring up the issues about how they're responding in the midst of their suffering. That's what it means to be responsible or take responsibility, which our culture does not want us to do. 
Responsibility. You have the ability to respond correctly. That's what it means to take responsibility. You quit shifting the blame. You acknowledge your own sinful responses, and you own up to your need for God's help and grace. And you take responsibility for your broken hearts, what's going on in you. The Bible says suffering is not our biggest enemy. Sin is. And while we always should mourn with those who mourn, and again, if you're in doubt, always lead with God's compassion for those who are suffering. We weep with those who weep. Our greatest desire is not to fix their lives, but to help them walk with the Lord faithfully. Next point, grace. It is only through an experience of God's grace that the heart will be reprogrammed. Do I believe counseling can work? Yes, because I believe in Christ and I believe in the gospel. And the point of preaching, uh, point of counseling is, you know, for me as a preacher at least, is I'm not there to preach a sermon during my conversation. Don't preach a sermon, but at the same time, don't preach another gospel. What's helpful on the pulpit is helpful when you're counseling. The gospel has to be trusted to do the work of God in counseling. For me, the temptation is I'm going to preach the gospel on the pulpit, and I really think God's grace makes a difference in their lives, but suddenly when I have someone in front of me, then I become this self-help guru. I just want to talk about methods and strategies and communication tips and how there's this, you could do it. Just put a bunch of laws on them. Just, just stop it. Stop being an idiot. What difference does God's grace really make in the messiness and brokenness of someone's life? You have someone in front of you who's lazy, they're struggling with sexual sin, apathetic, they're bitter, they're worried. They need to hear the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I think this doesn't just talk about salvation. It's talking about every day we need our faith strengthened by hearing the word of Christ. When we see Christians who are not living in line with the gospel, they're ineffective, they're unfruitful, or they're just living in sin, we have to ask ourselves, what are they missing? And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-9 through tells us we need to put on all these different qualities. You need to take hold of the divine nature that God has given to you, but... Later, in verse, uh, at the end of it, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's forgotten God's grace. And this is how I do it, okay? In counseling, there are times where this person who's either feeling condemned or they're feeling apathetic or whatever it is, and I say to them, Brother, I know you know what I'm going to say to you, but I want you to hear it. I want you to hear me right now. Yes, you are broken, and you are sinful, and what you've done is an evil sin. But brother, you are so loved, and you are forgiven, and Christ died for you. And his mercies are new every day. And it's not uncommon for me in that moment to have had, I at least had a couple experiences where at that moment I can see the gospel reprogram their hearts. We're not here to tell the same story that the secular world is telling them. Tell a better story. Don't give them more of what they're already getting in a secular setting. Remind them of the gospel. Share with them who they are in Christ, their identity with Christ, how God saved them from their sins, how Christ is at the right hand interceding for them right now. And let me just give a clarification here. When we're talking about giving grace to someone in counseling, 
it doesn't mean we're just saying we're okay with their sin, just be gracious, just give grace. That just means you overlook it, you don't talk about it. Uh, grace is often misunderstood, okay? We think grace means God accepts us as we, to- as we are. That is true, but that's not fully, fully true, okay? Better to say God accepts us as we are, despite who we are, and he's intending to change who we are. That's what God's grace does. Because those who receive God's grace are those who repent. We have the message, we have the story of the gospel, but does everyone receive the gospel? No. God has given an invitation that people can reject, but it's those who repent of their sins who receive. James chapter 4, I love how he says it. But um, those who humble themselves and they repent of their sins, he gives more grace, more grace. Titus chapter 2 tells us that grace teaches us how to say no, training us in godliness, in righteousness. God's grace or his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, and that's the one who receives grace. Grace doesn't mean just letting people continue in their sin, but it should lead to change. And one other clarify here. It's the gospel that will rearrange the motivational structures of the heart, not the law. The law, the Ten Commandments, whatever rules you want to come with, even if they're God's laws, Oftentimes we create our own laws, but even if it's God laws, God's laws, which are holy and true, they are not there to transform us. You keep opposing law on this person, like this is what a good Christian is supposed to do. If that's your motivation, all we're doing is external behavior modification rather than heart rescue. The law exposes us. It tells us right from wrong. It guides us. It's a tutor that leads us to God's grace. So often we try to rely on the law, you know, as a parent especially, I'm like, oh man, I just, just law, 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 when only God's grace can transform hearts. The gospel is always relevant, and one of our goals as a counselor is to learn how to apply the gospel to the person sitting in front of you. Next one, truth. Truth, the word of God has to be our central tool in counseling, And we believe at Savior Church that the Word of God is necessary and sufficient to address all matters of faith and practice. The Bible, it just depends how you look at this. Is this like a self-help book? Is there nice principles, nice stories? Is it an inspirational reading to sort of give you your daily pickup? That's how non-Christians read this. You can't see Scripture just as a rule book but it's through Scripture that a person is revealed, a person to know and to trust and to obey. How we counsel tells us if we believe God's Word is supernatural or if it's just another good book with good principles, just another 10, ten ways to lead a good life. Why is this so necessary in counseling? Okay. Why is this so necessary when you're counseling the blind? Okay. I, there, I don't want to press the details of this story too much because it's a narrative, but Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story of this deaf man that comes to Jesus, and then Jesus, it says, he sighed, and then he says, Ephatha, which means be opened, and his ears were opened. And I think there's something really profound there, isn't there, where Jesus, with his word, heals a deaf man. How does that work? What kind of miracle is that where this guy couldn't even hear? He's incapable, but his word is the one that washed him of his blindness. I mean, of his deafness. What can open up the eyes of the blind? What will open up the ears of the deaf? What can wash us of our fallenness? We're cleansed by the word of God. Like, I can't read hearts. I can't, I can't read your heart. I can, I can think I can, but at best I'm probably right maybe 20% of the time. But Scripture in its very nature exposes hearts. It's heart revealing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
That's a great passage about the Bible and how the Bible is like God's great scalpel. It cuts through all the layers of who they are. For lasting change to take place, a person has to see themselves accurately in the Word of God. They need to see and encounter the God of the Word and all the resources they have available to them. You know, physical doctors, they tell us what, like, what we need to be healthy. It's the same with doctoring the soul. What does the soul need? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I wish I could spend a whole sermon on just this point, but one of the primary ways to function as an instrument of change is to help others think biblically about their situation, their relationships, their thoughts, their motives and behavior. How often do we ask ourselves, as ambassadors, you know, do we think through a biblical grid, how often do we ask ourselves, what does the Bible have to say to this person? Do we think this is relevant? What does God have to say to this situation? What does the wonderful counselor have to say to this situation? And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean, a wrong idea of counseling means that therefore I have to quote a verse every single time I speak. That's not what I'm saying here. That's a wrong definition of biblical counseling. Sometimes in conversation, Jesus cited a book or even an author or a text specifically from earlier scripture. Sometimes he wove the words of scripture into conversation without noting the source. But his words were always biblical in their essence. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking and in teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Where do we get that all wisdom? Through this. Let me say something that will sound very or somewhat controversial at, when I first say it. Pulpit ministry, no matter how good it is, is not enough. And I'll make that even more. Pulpit ministry... Public ministry, while we as a church believe in the centrality of the preaching of the word, that's a pastor's primary call. That is not enough. In fact, add on your private devotionals. Let's say just your private devotionals. Even that is still only a two-legged stool. Why do I say that? Because first, experience has taught me that. And second, scripture says we don't just need the public ministry of the word, the private ministry of the word. We need the interpersonal ministry of the word. You have to share, speak the truth in love. You have to teach and admonish one another from scripture. In fact, I, what I'll say is that if a pulpit ministry is strong, it will create wise counselors that will speak the truth to one another. That's how we can evaluate the pulpit ministry. Do you know how to speak the truth and love to one another? That's what the Word of God should do. It should equip you not just to listen, but to share. And if you're reading the Bible supernaturally, you're going to naturally want to share it with others. There's no real getting around the idea that we, we have to know our Bibles. We have to be able to think like the king. We can't just say, I know the king. You have to know how he thinks, what he values, what he treasures, how he's responding. That's what it means to know someone, not just facts. You have to know their values. You have to know them so well that the second something happens, oh, I know that that's what he's thinking. That only happens when you're engrossed or you saturate your mind in scripture. And if you don't know scripture, you can't think through a biblical grid as an ambassador and share what the king has to say. My sermon was originally going to be only about this point, but I'm going to have to move on, okay? It was originally counseling with the supernatural word. I was like, oh man, I have too many things to say. So I broadened it, okay? Next point, maturity. You guys are doing good, okay? Maturity. The goal of our counseling is to help others be Christ-like, not to feel better. Yeah, I originally had to be better, not to feel better, but I wanted to be extra clear, okay? Listen, if, if you go to DG when, let's say you have, your life is perfect. Everyone in your DG's lives are perfect. It's sunny weather, things are great. Is there still a reason to go to DG? When there's no problems, when there's no crises, when everything in your life is good? Of course there is. If the only way we know how to relate to one another is by discussing our problems and our circumstances, we need to go back to the fallen point. 
Our goal is to move people forward in Christ-likeness, whether or not they are facing specific problems. That's the goal of counseling. That's the goal of all of our relationships. Ephesians 4 says the goal of speaking the truth in love is so that they will be mature, to grow in Christ-likeness, because that is the way they will be most alive. Examine your goals for all your relationships. What motivates you? Let's say you're not a Christian. You go outside the church. Just chill, be happy, self-actualization. Meet your potential, your skills, acceptance. Paul says in Galatians 4, 19, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How much do you want to see the person next to you have Christ formed in them? Biblical counseling or counseling one another demands a higher agenda for our relationships than making myself and others happy or comfortable. It's holiness, not happiness. Of course, I want to lighten the burden of those who are depressed. Of course, I want to bear the burdens of those who are grieving and help them find relief. And I have to meet this person where they're at. But if I stop there, I'm not helping them have life that is truly life. It's not just those who are suffering or got major problems who are needing counseling. Every person needs counseling because every person has room to grow. And so oftentimes we get like so caught up in like a certain culture that we've that is cemented where it's like, ah, I don't really have, I, I found myself saying this the other day, ah, this person's not doing well, I don't really have that kind of person, uh, relationship with that person. And, you know, we sort of just have a chit-chat relationship. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to sort of go and try to suddenly have really superficial talks and as if that gives me an excuse to not love this person, to not help them mature. If I was outside the church, I could say that, but in the church, it's not okay to always just be casual. We tend to live in such chronically casual relationships. Yeah, we know each other, but we don't actually know each other, and we don't want things to get awkward. I don't want to talk about spiritual things, and so we're trapped in the casual. But if maturity is our goal, we need to constantly look for opportunities to move beyond the casual and move towards sanctifying relationships, to learn where they are growing and need to grow and where we can minister to their souls. Like, what are we doing at DG? Is it, is it just to share? Hey, you share, you share, you share, you share. It's not just to share, it's to sanctify. If by the end of my time together with this person, I'm not helping them become more like Christ and what I'm doing is not Christian counseling, I'm not speaking the truth in love, let's stop trying so hard to make each other feel comfortable, to feel welcomed, to pray for their test to go well. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little, little jab. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care if your test goes well. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I'm not, what are we praying for? I'll pray that you have the joy and contentment in Christ, that whatever happens, you'll be fine. But I'm, not to say I'm not happy if your test goes, well, I'm not going to pray for that. Just study, you know, just stop being lazy, you know. But in the end, I don't care. You got to see, what does that have to do with your sanctification? Right? Just pray for spiritual things. It's not to say we can't pray for good things. Like, good things are, you know, praying for someone's healing, praying for someone's health. I'll always, I'll listen to that. I'll always have compassion if someone's not doing well in your life. But that's not the best thing. I'm praying for your sanctification. We're not here to make each other comfortable. We're here to help each other train. Moving on, understanding, okay? And uh, I think it gets a little shorter but at these points, Okay. Truly hearing and understanding someone is a first step in loving them. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Okay, and this may be the most practical of the points, okay? Actually, I would say the gospel is the most practical of the points, right? But in counseling, it's very easy to speak first and listen, but the way we should love people is first to listen. And I heard this quote where it said, I don't know who it was, but this is not me. I could not write this. But being heard, it says, being heard is so close to being loved, 
that for the average person, they are virtually indistinguishable. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Constantly in the Bible, you see, I love the word, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. He has inclined his ear. Isaiah 59, he's eager to hear our cries. And how we listen determines, or we have the opportunity to communicate and show that God draws near and listens to us. First, before you say anything, you have to understand their context. What is this person facing in life? Listen to their problem. Listen to the context of their struggles before you jump into trying sharing. The first thing should be to listen. And listening doesn't mean being passive and just sitting there. At times, a good listener will interrupt and ask a good question to direct things. Because honestly, some people, they don't know where they're going. They don't know the right direction to go. One way to do that is just ask thoughtful questions. Draw it out of them. The purpose, Proverbs 25, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. From Genesis 3, God is always asking questions. Why? To learn. No. Where are you? Is he asking that to learn? No. What is this you have done? Why are you angry? Where have you come from? Where were you? Do you do well to be angry? Who do you say that I am? Jesus counseling the Samaritan woman. There's this idea of said and answered, said and answered. 20 times in that short story. He's not just preaching a sermon. He's giving us a working methodology for counseling. Give and take, listen, ask, proclaim. When a person comes to you, and this is something that was important for me to understand, don't assume he is fully conscious or he or she is fully conscious of what motivates him. <laughs> People can have motives, desires, and beliefs they're not fully conscious of. You know, for me, I'm laughing because I'm like, I'm the type, I instantly know what I want to say. A lot of people I know are not like that. I speak, I, uh, I think out loud. And I don't need time to process. Other people who are, I'm just like, come on, what do you, what do you think? And they're like, they, I, I need some time to think about it. And, and I'm always like, oh, right? Because they're not fully aware of, you know, everything going on. They need some time to think. And oftentimes their thoughts are better thought out than mine. But not every person, not every aspect of a person's response is the result of immediate conscious determination. Everyone has, like, different degrees of awareness of their beliefs, their what's going on, and counseling is helping them to gain insight into their own heart as well. Wise people are not only people who ask the right, uh, who have the right answers, but they ask the right questions. And so oftentimes we can't even get to the right answers without asking the right questions. And don't put, like, I do this all the time, you know, it's like bad, but don't project your experiences on them. Like, don't make assumptions that, oh, you went through what I went through, it's all the same. When we assume our situations are like theirs, our thoughts are like theirs, then we don't, we don't ask questions to, we don't ask the right questions. We assume. But don't assume, but ask. Ask questions that direct you to their hearts. Okay, uh, going back to DG, I'm just like, I tell my DG all the time, I don't really care how your day went. I, it doesn't matter to me. I went to work and I did this. Just, I don't care about events. I want to know what happened in your heart. What emotions did you experience? Why did you experience that? How, are, how did your heart respond to God or self or other people? It's not about how your day went, but what was going on within you. Why did you feel that way? You're trying to get to the motivations of the heart. And this is a principle that I always found helpful, but there's always a sin beneath the sin. What's going on beneath them? Okay, On the exterior, maybe they're lying, but beneath there, there's something going on where they're replacing Christ, some kind of idolatry, something they made more important to God, than God. There's a reason for their sinful desire, something that's ruling them. Let's say they lie. Like, why did you lie? What's going on? What's the sin beneath the sin? I'm so obsessed with this person's approval. Why are you so lazy? Why do you play video games all day? Why? I want significance, or there's, there's this feeling I get when I'm playing this game of I'm achieving something, I'm doing something great, or it's an escape from reality, or it's just pleasure. 
Or you have someone who's getting angry. Don't just say, stop getting angry. Like, what are you defending? What is being threatened where you get so angry when this situation comes up? Is it your control? Is it disrespect? Is it a loss of comfort? Is it a loss of security? Ask, what's the sin beneath the sin? Ask good questions. Moving on, process, okay? Process. We must be committed to a long view of counseling because change is a process and not an event. Okay, you can't see counseling in the church, and I think this is honestly where there's a big advantage over counseling in the church. It's from womb to the tomb. It's lifelong. It's in your natural context. It's never for like, here, we're going to meet for 10 weeks, and then, you know, if you're constantly doing life together, it's a lifelong process, not just like a a counseling event. We should be having never-ending conversations with each other, and the same conversation over and over and over again. I'm constantly trying to counsel my children, and I keep thinking, why don't they get it? We've talked about this. Not the same conversation over and over again. My daughter, Tabby, four years old, she hits her brother, like punches him in the face, basically, with her bucket, because he kept poking her, and then she punches him in the face, like literally, just like, push with the bucket on her hand, right? And why did you do that, Tabby? And I've talked to her about this before and before, and I'm like, this is how I want her to say it. I want her to be like, Daddy. Okay, I'm not going to try to imitate her voice, okay? <laughs> I was, there was a part of me that started. She, it's so funny. She called, I call her Tabby Wabby, so she starts calling me Daddy Wabby. Right? Daddy, I hate Micah because of the sin in my heart. I'm selfish and jealous, and I need to be forgiven and changed. Daddy, the greatest danger lives inside of me, and so I need a savior. <laughs> That's how I, I'm like, come on, we talked about this. Like, there's a sin in you. You're a troublemaker, right? <laughs> everything we say, everything we do, everything we think that makes God sad, right? I always tell her that, right? Um, but instead, she always says, he poked me, and he keeps taking my stuff and telling him not to, and then screaming. Listen, the gospel, when you are saved, justification was an event, it's complete, it's done, but the work of transformation is a lifelong purpose, and I think when God saved us, I know when God saved us, he was committing to a long, day-by-day process of confronting, forgiving, transforming, delivering grace. Counseling is not a dramatic, like, confrontation, confession event, but it's a lifelong process where change takes place so slowly And so we have to put aside any, like, desire to see change or fruit pop up overnight. Because that leads to unrealistic expectations. You get impatient. Speaking the truth in love won't have a conclusion. It's often partial, unfinished, incremental, and it's the spirit that will open up their eyes in his timing, not yours. That means I'm freed from, like, I need to get this person to get it in one conversation. Tabby, you don't get it? Okay, we're going to keep talking about it. Don't worry about it. I don't need to like stuff everything in there. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And for us type A people, okay, you know who you are. Counseling is the most inefficient ministry you'll do. You will always have work left that needs to be done. Always unfinished business. People don't change overnight. Counseling is slow. There are detours, valleys, fallbacks, joys, heartaches. People are messy, and when you are going to counsel them, you are wading into a lot lot of time-consuming messes. God doesn't expect his servants to be type A, all of his servants to be type A, detail-oriented, Excel sheets, spreadsheet gurus. But you have to understand, caring for people is so inefficient. And efficiency is not the goal. Effectiveness is the goal. I found this quote from Martin Luther, and I thought it would summarize this point. Well, this is the ninth point, by the way, so we only have one more left. The next one's really short, okay? in case you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. 
The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory. All is being purified. Tenth point, last point, mercy. When I'm a changing person, I'm able to help others do the same. This is where it's very different from professional counseling. When I'm convinced that I desperately need mercy, I'll be the best at giving mercy. Biblical counseling takes its own medicine first. This is true of preaching, but also counseling. Power has to come to me if power is going to come from me. And what I've learned is that the state of my own faith, repentance, and obedience is a single most important factor affecting the counseling that I do. You can only give to people what you're being given. When you're learning kindness from your Savior, you'll be able to teach unkind people. When you're learning to endure suffering well, you'll be able to reach sufferers. And there are plenty of times where I get a call, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't want to talk to this person, or I don't want to pick up the phone, and I'm bitter, I'm anxious, I'm grumpy, I'm fearful, I make presumptions, and I really have to check my own heart, my own attitudes. Maybe I'm feeling intimidated or anxious, or I just don't like this person, or I'm impatient with them, or I just think, oh, this person's easy, so I'm overconfident and in control, and I'm not prayerful. Either way, counseling supernaturally is the result of someone who has prepared themselves in their own lives, prayed for God to work, and is not simply going through the motions of their own faith. If the first thought you have when you counsel someone is, what's wrong with you? If that's the first thing you think or first thing you say, then then you're missing it. The faithful counselor is the one who constantly confesses their own self-righteousness. They know they are, in, in, they are a consistent lawbreaker, not a faithful lawkeeper. They don't think they're more mature than they actually are. This is the only way to love the person you're counseling, right? It's, not, it's one thing to have skills of counseling. It's another person to simply love the person you're counseling, to bear their burdens, to get close to them. And the ability to love beyond my natural capacity only comes when God enables me through his love, the love of Christ in my own heart. I need to be convinced on a daily basis of my desperate need of God's grace and mercy, and that will put me in the best state to counsel well. Let me just read through the 10 points, and then I'll just land this plane. Called, the entire church is called to be instruments, not just one corner, but all of us are called to be instruments of God. Inability, just recognize your weakness. And as an ambassador, you're not free to say what you want to say, faithfully represent the king. Fallen, the biggest problem, and you have to see the core problem, not the only problem, but the core problem in this person's life is them. Grace, it's only through an experience of God's grace. Only the gospel can rearrange the motivational structures of the heart. Truth, the word of God, this is what will open up people's eyes. And we believe this is sufficient. Maturity, I'm not there to help make people feel better, but to be better. Understanding, truly hearing and understanding someone is the first step in loving them. Process, just be patient. And mercy, know your own need for God's grace. Going back to Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge or all revelation and able to counsel or competent to counsel one another. And I think of our church, we have plenty of room to grow with all of our weaknesses and blemishes. I am very cynical. You guys know me about that, but I don't have a low view of our church. I myself, this is what Paul says, I myself, and this is what I'm saying to you, believe that you're full of goodness, you have the revelation of God, without a title, without a master's degree, without a seminary education, you are competent to counsel one another. Why do I believe that? Because God said it. 
with all you know, having the revelation of God, true goodness, you are able to counsel one another. I think it just comes down to, do you know the facts about life, about people, about their brokenness, and do you know the mercies of God in Christ? If you have that, then you have what you need. It's not skills. Do you see why? It's not skills. It's not tips. It's not just like, here's how to listen well, okay? But it's certain perspectives and principles that are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you counsel with what the gospel says about God, you, your friends, and God's grace, you will counsel in counterintuitive, supernatural ways. And ultimately, ultimately, our confidence did not rely on my skill set or your skill set. No matter how skilled you are, as a Christian counselor, your confidence should be in the gospel, in the power of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his word. Don't teach your friends, don't counsel in a way that teaches people to rely on you. Teach them to rely on the king. Supernatural counseling in the end is not a human-to-human interaction, but ultimately it has to be a human-to-savior interaction. When you counsel, you are representing and bringing a living God to people who need him. That's a tall task, and I know you feel ill-equipped, but I know you care. And so make it your desire to be a sharp and ready tool in the hands of God, in the hands of the wonderful counselor. Every Christian is capable of helping, even with the really hard stuff in the Christian life. You have the sword of the Spirit. If you have Christ's love in your heart and you have a willingness to serve, you can be effective. Church, put aside passivity and become involved in the lives of those around you, even in the really messy situation. Sunday service is not enough. We have to be speaking the truth in love to each other, involved in each other's lives all the time. God has called us to be instruments of his grace to help others change. But remember, you are only the servant. You are the reflection. You are the image. You are the counselor. You're more of a peer counselor. He is the maker. He is the light. He is the master. And he is the wonderful counselor. If you hear, know, trust, and obey such a God, then you will counsel in supernatural ways. Let's pray. Father, we are not here to grow in our confidence in ourselves. I pray the opposite. I pray that our inability would lead to dependence. Use us and the lives of those around us to be instruments in your hands. We are not the Savior. You are the Savior. And we just want to remember that we are not the Christ. Whether people are hurting or they're in sin or they just have room to grow, I pray that Savior Church will always be a church that points back to you. And so help us, enable us to love beyond our natural capacities, Remove a selfish desire. And God, give us the strength to die to ourselves and to live for others so that others may experience your life. So thank you for your word. We believe it is sufficient and it gives us all that we need. I pray that we would wield the sword of the spirit with courage and strength, humility and boldness. And that our church would be a mighty tool in your hands. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.